If you've got your Bible, I'll ask you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel and 24. Uh, this summer, we've been preaching through the life of David. Recently, I took a little break to preach on some messages on the subject of lies about God. If you missed those, you can go on the LBC Facebook page and look those up. We're going to pick that theme back up in the coming weeks, but today I want to get back to David. 1 Samuel 24, I'm going to be talking to you today on the subject of when you've been wronged. In December 20 of 21, veteran police officer Richard Houston of the Mesquite Police Department in Texas responded to an incident in a grocery store parking lot. As Houston pulled up to assess the scene, he saw an estranged husband and wife fighting. Houston tried to approach the man to calm him down, but when he did, he pulled out a gun and shot the officer twice before turning the gun on himself. Tragically, Richard Houston died on the scene. The killer was rushed to the hospital and doctors were able to stabilize his condition. It doesn't seem right, does it? The lawman dies, the criminal lives. Houston left behind a wife and three children. He was known in the community not only as a public servant, but as a committed man of God. Days after the slaying, a broken community gathered at the family's church for an emotional service. Now as shocking as Houston's death was, what was more stunning was the response of his 18-year-old daughter, Shelby, who was pictured there, who stood before the mourners that day and gave a eulogy for her father. At the end of her speech, Shelby spoke about forgiving her father's killer. Here's what she said. Since my daddy's death, there's been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my dad. But I cannot get any part of my heart to hate him All I can find in myself is the hope that this man will turn to Jesus Christ. I thought this might change if the man continued to live, but when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, she said part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I get to spend some time with the man who shot my father, not to scream at him, not to condemn him or scold him, but simply to tell him about the love of Jesus. And if you want to go watch that video, you can look it up on YouTube. That service is on there. And I guarantee you there wasn't a dry eye in the church that day. Scenes like that have a way of taking the air out of our lungs And leaves the watching world baffled. The world doesn't understand that. That's because forgiveness is not natural. It's supernatural. And when mercy and grace come breaking into our cold and callous world, friend, it's a window into the gospel. A window into the transcendent. Now, forgiveness is something we all need. But... When you're offended, it's the most difficult thing to do. Somebody say amen. Amen. Maybe the hardest thing that God asks us to do at times is to learn how to let go, to forgive. 
C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He said, quote, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> I've been there. And that is why we turn to 1 Samuel 24 this morning and it stands out to us as one of the most amazing episodes of the early career of David. When we think of David's greatest victories, our mind goes to 1 Samuel and 17 where we watch him get that victory over the giant. When you think of David, you think of Goliath and you think that was his pinnacle moment watching the giant fall to the ground with a thud. But I would wager that an even greater victory than that stands before us today in 1 Samuel 24 when David gets victory over a giant named Revenge. There he is holed up in a cave as Saul, his enemy, is hunting him. Now up to this point, remember, David has been ducking and dodging Saul's spears and attacks for many years. David has become a fugitive. He's a man without a country. He's number one on Israel's most wanted list. Saul, the king at this moment, views David as a threat to his throne, even though God has already anointed David, blessed David, and David has the promise of one day sitting on the throne and being the king. Yet, still with that knowledge, Saul fights against God's anointed. And then one day, as providence would have it, as David is hiding in a cave, Saul strolls into that hideout of David, unknowingly, there in the presence of the man he's hunting. David has a knife in his hand. The tension is so thick in 1 Samuel 24, you could practically cut it with that knife. And there David faces a choice that you and I often find ourselves at the crossroads of, revenge or reconciliation. In today's message, I had thought about entitling it, How to Behave in a Cave. But I want to talk to you instead about when you've been wronged. We've all been there. We've all had our feelings hurt. We've all got our feathers ruffled. Some of us have left churches over broken relationships and hurt feelings. Some of us still have pent up grudges against people from the past and things have been done to you and you've been hurt in ways that still hurt you to this day. This message is for you. Maybe you don't know Christ today. You don't know how much God loves you and, and yet you need this forgiveness that I'm about to preach upon because you stand in need of God's reconciliation. David's incredible restraint here in 1 Samuel 24 is going to teach us several principles about what to do when you've been wronged. Number one is this. When you've been wronged, refuse revenge. When you've been wronged, refuse revenge. We're going to read the first three verses together. 1 Samuel 24, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David, and his men went in front of the wild goats' rocks. Verse 3, And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself and now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Friends, you can't write it any more dramatic than that. 
And as this chapter opens, we read how drastically now the tables have turned in this cat and mouse game between Saul and David. We read that Saul is heeding the call of nature as he steps inside the nearest cave to do his business, but little does he know that David is just a few yards away there, hidden by the rocks and the darkness. I have yet to see a Hollywood production of this scene, but you can imagine in your mind the tension, the heat of the day, the the dampness of the cave, the glistening sweat that appears on David's brow as he thinks about, there's the man in front of me who's been hunting me, and now's my moment. I can end this. The golden opportunity for David to end his bitterest enemy. The temptation had to be unbearable. Imagine if you were a sniper in World War II, and you had Hitler in your crosshairs, and with one pull of the trigger, you could... You could in the fight, in the war, and save millions of lives. Most of us wouldn't hesitate to pull the trigger. And David's men who are with him there in the cave think the same thing as they begin to unsheath their blades. Notice what verse 4 says. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Don't ask how he did that. I don't know. David had ninja skills, I guess. Verse 5, and afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. Think about this. David is whispering to his men as he crawls back to that little corner and he he convinces them to hold off the attack. But he has snuck up behind Saul with that nagger in hand you would think if you'd never read this story, oh, he's going to slit his throat. This is going to be, this is it. And yet, he goes for that piece of rope. And I wonder what his men thought. Hey, what's David doing? Has he gone soft? What's, what's wrong with, why, why isn't he taking his life? I'm sure David may have had a sense of humor a little bit. Because when Saul gets put back together and he checks out his robe. He notices he's he's going to be wearing a (laughs) miniskirt. But after it's over, the Bible says that David's heart struck him. David had a tender heart, didn't he? The man after God's own heart. The psalmist who wrote those immortal words there as a shepherd boy. He has a tender heart for God. And after this scene transpires and David goes back to his men. His conscience begins to eat away at him. That ever happened to you? I hope it does. David's conscience is bothering him. And you ask yourself, why is David so bent out of shape about this? After all that Saul has done to you, man, this is, this is nothing. But in David's mind, this wardrobe vandalism showed disrespect for the office that Saul held. 
even though Saul was a derelict and a rebel and a petty man, he was still the king. And David wanted to pay respect to the rank and not the man, right? Kind of like what we hear in our military. But there's something here that emerges as I apply this text to our lives. The remarkable moment shows us a couple of things about this impulse of revenge. And the first is this. Revenge makes sense according to the way of the flesh, but not when you're walking in the Spirit. Let me say that again. When you're living in the flesh, revenge makes sense, but if you're guided by the Spirit, you'll choose differently. You see, every one of David's men felt, hey, David, you would have been totally justified in plunging that knife into the heart of Saul. That's the way of the flesh, right? Jesus said, you've heard it, an eye for an eye. But remember, David is operating under a different set of authority here. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit since 1 Samuel 16. He's not walking in the flesh. He's walking by the leading of God's Spirit. And friend, when you're controlled by the Spirit of God, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5 says. And one evidence that you know the Holy Spirit is working in your life is when you have the opportunity to seek revenge, to get even, to pay back, and the Holy Spirit stops you, pumps the brakes, and says, ho, 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 wait up here. You know the Holy Spirit is working when men, you're in that conversation that gets heated with your wife, and right before you say that thing that is going to land you in the doghouse, mm, you bite your tongue. Because you can be right or you can be happy. Amen? <laughs> you know the Holy Spirit is working in your life when the boss rips you up one side and down the other and you just want to give it back to Him but you stand there with grace and grit and you choose another way. Amen? Adrian Rogers said this, great quote, I wish I would have wrote these words. He said, quote, there are three responses we can have when we've been wronged. The hellish response returns evil for good. The human response returns good for good. But the heavenly response returns good for evil. If you want to be different than the devil and better than the world, then show them something they've never seen. Give them a glimpse of grace. How much grace did David show his enemy in this moment? The second lesson that I see here is ultimately that revenge is not satisfying. Right? It's interesting that we live under this delusion that if we get even with our enemies then our hearts will rejoice. But in fact, David's response here in this moment shows the very opposite. He did taste a little bit of revenge. He cut off that part of Saul's robe. And yet, the Bible says, his conscience started to eat him. That little bit of revenge didn't bring any satisfaction to who he was. Why is that? Well, I think it's because revenge reduces us to our basest sinful desires. Anger, hate, violence. And that puts us on the same level as our offenders. And here's another thing, friend. I've noticed this about people who can't forgive. 
people who have trouble moving on and letting go, the pursuit of trying to get even makes you a perpetual victim of the person you hate. You're, you're endlessly tied to this conveyor belt of getting even and getting revenge. And you know what? When you're tied to that thing, you never get off and you never get healing and you never move on. And some people's lives are completely defined by that desire for revenge. Y'all know I'm a nerd. I have freely admitted it many times. And yet my wife still married me. I love the Lord of the Rings. I love J.R. Tolkien. love The Hobbit. There's a fantastic scene from The Hobbit movie that I think illustrates this, this choice between revenge or the high road of mercy. Bilbo Baggins is the famous Hobbit. And he and Gandalf the wizard stumble into a, a treasure trove of, of, of weapons and, and riches. Gandalf finds a, a unique elvish blade and he gives it to Bilbo and he says these words. The wise wizard gives this piece of advice to the hobbit and he says this, I hope you never have to use this sword, but if you do, remember this, true courage is about knowing not when to take a life, but when to spare one. Ties in beautifully with 1 Samuel 24, doesn't it? Later on in the, in the Hobbit movie, Bilbo defeats his enemy Gollum in the cave. He defeats him in a game of riddles and he's trying to escape. And as he's about to leave, he has the moment there where he can plunge the sword into the creature Gollum's neck. And then he remembers Gandalf's words as he looks into the face of that miserable wretch, that creature Gollum. The thought crosses his mind that if I kill this creature, my soul will be corrupted and I will begin down the pathway that will turn me into him. The same Holy Spirit who controlled David is the Holy Spirit today who indwells believers and restrains us from revenge when we have been wrong. Friend, I know it hurts. I know it's a wound that nobody can see. I know you've played it out many times in your mind, but when you continually seek revenge, you corrupt your soul and you eventually turn yourself into that twisted creature that we abhor. That's why if you've been wronged, refuse revenge. Secondly, I want you to see this. When you've been wronged, risk reconciliation. Risk reconciliation. It's quiet in here this morning. I must be touching on a nerve. Either that or I'm preaching bad. <laughs> Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. How incredible is that? Verse 9, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? In other words, David says to Saul, Hey, you've been getting fake news, buddy. I'm not after you. i got no beef with you. Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen the Lord and how He gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out of my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. Then look at this. The evidence. See my Father who see the corner of the robe 
of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of the robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. What an awesome scene. And you just thought the best drama was on Netflix. It's right here between the pages of the Word of God. Isn't this an amazing scene? As I mentioned, David had to have ninja skills to slink up behind Saul and cut off a piece of that robe. But it took epic courage to then leave the safety of that cave and confront Saul man to man. Let me stop right there and just preach on something. We got a lot of cowards in the world today who want to sit behind a computer screen or a phone and rip people, deplatform people, cancel people, call people names. You know why? It's easy to be a tough guy when you're sitting behind a computer screen typing, hey, if you got something to say to me, let's sit down mano in mano and you say it to my face. If you've got a problem, if you've got beef, if you've got conflict in your life, in your family, in your church, the worst thing you can do is go on a Facebook or social media tirade. Let's follow the Word of God and let's get in a room with that person, look them in the eyes and have a human conversation with them and be adults and work out our problems. Amen? I've seen too many families, too many churches, and too many relationships torn apart by people who don't have the guts to say to my face what they'll go online and say. Amen? David has tremendous courage. He comes out and faces the man who's been hunting him. And says, look, we got to talk. Wow, what a challenge to you and me. This is risky because David has no idea how Saul would react. But with the piece of cloth in hand, David proves, look. I'm not out for you. I don't have hatred in my heart. And what I love about this is David is proactive to do everything in his power to reconcile with Saul. Listen to what Jesus said. David becomes the embodiment of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, watch this, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, if you've got beef, if you've got conflict, if you've got problems in your life, don't even think about worshiping me. First, go and get that situation reconciled with that brother or sister, if at all possible, and then come back to the church house and worship. Sometimes our worship is so dead and so lifeless because we bring all the drama, all the problems, all the conflict in, and we ain't really dealt with our heart. You know how I know revival will hit the church? When people who've been fussing and fighting and gossiping and talking about each other, when they get down at an altar and they cry on each other and they cry before the Lord and they say, I'm sorry, I should have never said that. I want to let it go. God, if at all possible, send revival to my heart because I don't want any conflict in my life. That's how you know there's, there's true revival in the church when people are getting right with each other because they've gotten right with Him. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 18, If it is possible as far as depends upon you, live at peace with 
Everyone. It's a hard thing to do in a culture where they label you, demonize you, vilify you, and cancel you if you misgender them. Amen? But Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with them. I don't have to agree with everybody. I don't have to vote the same as everybody. I don't have to have the same worldview. But as a Christian and as a believer in Jesus Christ, I do have to make the attempt, if at all is, lies within me, to be at peace with them because ultimately I want to be able to represent Jesus to them. Amen. I want to have that open door to tell them about the love and the mercy and the grace of God and what He's done in my life. So we don't have to be like the world, do we, church? Listen to me very, very carefully. I want to make this so abundantly clear. Because I've dealt with so many relational problems in my ministry. Dealing with people and conflicts that arise. Listen. Reconciliation is not always possible. I get that. It takes two to tango, right? But according to the gospel, it is our mandate to at least try by making the first move. Yeah, it's risky. We don't know if we'll be received or rejected but here's one thing I do know. I've done enough funerals and been beside enough broken families at the end. I don't want to go to my grave with burnt bridges behind me. I want to be able to lay down my life whenever the Lord decides when that time comes and say, God, I did it my best to be at peace with you and at peace with my family and my fellow men. Somebody has to be the one to stop the stalemate. And open the door of reconciliation. And you know what? According to the word of God, it's you. It's me. Because oftentimes we get trapped in this, well, I'm waiting on them. I'm the offended one. They need to apologize to me. Don't wait on them. Someday never comes. You do what the Bible tells you to do and risk reconciliation. Some of you are thinking right now of that person that you need to you need to call. Right now, you need to message them later today. You need to sit down and have a face-to-face -face with them. Some of you are asking that question right now. Who do I need to reconcile with? No, you don't have to be best buddies, and you may not be able to put back the broken pieces again, but you can try. You can be like David here in this moment and say, Look, man, I don't have any problem. I want to let it go. I want to move on. Clarence McCartney, he was a preacher of yesteryear. He told a story about a couple in his church. This man and this woman had become estranged and separated, but for some reason, they didn't file for divorce. The husband moved to a different city. They had a son. The wife took care of the son. The son lived with her. It wasn't long until after they separated, though, that the, the son got sick and died. And of course, the funeral was absolutely tragic. It was difficult for both parents considering the strain of the relationship already. And then add on that, the death of the son. Clarence McCartney said a few years went by and they each lived in their own private pain. Until one day the couple met unexpectedly. Listen to this. The husband decided to go to the cemetery to visit the grave of his son. And as the man stood by the grave, he heard someone coming up behind him. He turned and saw the face of his estranged wife. 
Of course, what had drawn them both together was that common interest in that grave. And McCartney said as they clasped hands, wept together, and eventually reconciled their differences. But he wrote these words. He said, it took the death of their son to bring them back together again. That's what it takes to bring the church back together and culture back together and you and I and our broken relationships back together. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself. And when you understand the gospel and you understand how much you've been forgiven and how much God has let go of your past, we can find reconciliation then with each other after we have first been reconciled to God. You see, there has been a death of a son. The son Jesus Christ on the cross to make payment for sin and to reconcile God and man. And that same power that brings God and man together can bring man and woman together or man against man or woman against woman and rebuild those broken relationships. I've seen God do it. We're called to do all that we can to make it right. And listen, if the other person doesn't Want to have anything to do with resolving the conflict? I get it. You can't change their heart. We may be responsible to them, but we are not responsible for them. But at least when you lay your head down at night, you can have a clear conscience knowing, God, I did everything in my power to reconcile and refuse revenge. And then number three, I want you to see this as I close. When you've been wronged, Refuse revenge, risk reconciliation, and then notice this, release the relationship to God. Release the relationship to God. Verse 12, notice what happens here. May the Lord judge between you and me, David said, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you, As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And whom do you pursue? After a dead dog. After a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you and me and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. The third lesson that David shows us here in this passage is that when we release the offending party over to the Lord... Something happens. In reaching out to Saul, notice this, David never relinquished his desire for justice to be done. But what he did was he turned the executing of justice over to God. Right? And that's what forgiveness at its basis is about. It involves transferring to God the right to extract payment from our offender. It's saying, God... Evening of the scales, that's up to you. I leave that in your hands. I'm going to forgive them so that I can move on with my life. Just like a company that finds itself unable to collect a bill from a delinquent customer. If you don't pay the bill, they turn you over to a debt collector. And similarly, when we forgive someone, we are emotionally releasing them and assigning that obligation to the ultimate debt collector God And as you start praying for them, you're going to notice God change your heart. And you say, God, it's up to you to go extract from them what is just and what is right. And I would rather God do that than me. 
Again, Paul's wisdom from Romans 12, verse 19. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Max Lucado writes in his book, quote, Your enemies still figure into God's plan. Their pulse is proof that God hasn't given up on them. They may be out of God's will, but they are not beyond God's reach. Trusting God in the process means that you leave room for Him to be ultimate judge. If we try to impose punishment, we will either be too slight or too severe. But God dispenses perfect justice. Leave your enemies in God's hands. That way you won't get your hands dirty. Who's ripped you off? Who stole something of value from you? Who tormented and tortured you all those years? Who left an emotional scar so deep that only God knows about it today? Turn that individual over to the Lord. Ask God to remove any root of bitterness in your heart and sick the Lord on them. The greatest thing that can happen is if they meet Jesus Christ and their heart is changed and then they can find the same forgiveness that you found. Amen. Amen. Notice how the story finishes up, verse 16. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Wow. You talk about Saul getting a dose of grace and mercy. Saul's hard heart is melted by the burning hot coals of conviction that David poured on him. And amazingly, did you notice what Saul said to David? You are greater than I would ever be, David. In other words, what he's saying is this. David, you're ten times the king that I'll be, that I am. And David in that moment proved, I believe, more than he did when he killed the giant. David proved he was worthy to wear the crown that day. Amen? Because true courage is not taking a life, but knowing when to spare one. 1943, there was a German fighter pilot named Franz Stiegler. He was in pursuit of an American bomber pilot named Charlie Brown. Not the Peanuts Charlie Brown, but his name was Charlie Brown. Franz Stiegler was looking to shoot him down. If he did, he would earn the Knight's Cross, the highest honor of a German pilot. But as Franz Stiegler approached the plane, he could see portions of the bomber's skin was blown off and he could see inside the cockpit. He had been trained that honor is everything. He also saw that his opponent, Charlie Brown, was wounded and near death. Stiegler thought, if I survive the war, I'll always remember what my father told me. The only way to live with myself is if I had fought with as much humanity as possible. Stiegler gestured for Charlie Brown to land the plane, intending to escort him in. 
But Brown had no intention of landing in Germany and being taken prisoner. And so Stiegler saluted Brown as he veered away. His last words to the American were, Good luck. You're in God's hands now. Miraculously, listen to this. Charlie Brown was able to land the plane back in England. He continued his Air Force career for two decades, but he remained obsessed with the incident. In 1990, he took out an article in the newspaper looking for fighter pilot in Germany. December 20th, 1943, looking for the one who saved my life. Stiegler, who was living in Vancouver, saw the ad in the newspaper and yelled to his wife, This is him! This is the man I didn't shoot down! He immediately wrote a letter to Charlie Brown and the two men then connected over an emotional phone call. Stiegler and Brown reunited in a Florida hotel and as the two men talked, they discovered a common bond. You're going to like this, Brian. Fishing and Jesus. They went deep sea fishing and they talked weekly until both men died in 2008, six months apart. They started off as enemies, then became friends, and then something more. Why? How? Because James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. The whole taking point, takeaway of this whole passage is this. In this moment, I see a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. David is modeling for you and me the gospel here. In type and in shadow. Listen to this as we close today. Let's have that chart come up. Do you know that in the wilderness, David is tempted to give in to his flesh? To take the easy way out to become king? That's a lot like Jesus, who was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Satan offered Jesus an easy way out of the cross. He promised Jesus to bow down and worship Him, and Satan would give Him all the kingdoms of the world. But you know what? Jesus refused. David offered mercy and forgiveness to Saul instead of vengeance. And I remember as Christ hung on the cross in Luke 22, He looked down on the people who were slaying Him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then David's greatest victory, oh, this makes me excited. David's greatest victory occurred as he emerged out of that cave holding something from his enemy. It was the cloak of Saul. And I remember as Jesus emerged from a cave where they had buried him after he died on the cross, they rolled the stone away. He emerged from that cave with something that belonged to his enemy. It was the keys of death and Hades. And he rules and reigns forevermore. Where do you find yourself in the story today? Are you like Saul? Man, you've got a list of offenses and sins a mile long. You should get wrath. But I'm telling you, mercy and grace are available today. You can find hope and peace in the gospel. Turn to Christ and let Him restore your rebel's heart. Are you like David today? You have a list of hurts a mile long. You're wrestling with the decision to show revenge or reconciliation. And the pain is so raw, but you know what the answer is? 
you turn to Jesus. Forgiveness isn't easy, but with Him, it's possible. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I'm done. Let us go to Calvary and learn how we may be forgiven. And let us linger there so that we may learn how to forgive. Amen. Our musicians are coming. As God is dealing with hearts today, we're going to stand and sing in a moment. I don't know how this message may have spoken to you, but you know, there's some work that needs to be done in your life. Jesus can do it. If you give Him the reins of your life and allow Him to come in and change your heart, forgive you and show you His great grace. If you need Christ today as your Lord and Savior, look no further than the cross where Jesus died in your place. And He offers you that same forgiveness that David offered Saul. Maybe you need to let go of some stuff today. Bitterness and anger and hatred and resentment has been eating your lunch. There's an old-fashioned altar right here that needs to be re-wet with tears. And God can do it in your heart. I'll be here to pray with anybody for anything and any reason. Preston's going to lead us, if you will. Will you stand? And let's let God have His way in this moment.